Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. If you are new or visiting, we do want to extend a special welcome to you, and so please come and find me or any one of the other elders after service is over. Uh, we'd love to meet you. And for any of us here, uh, whether you're new or not, uh, any questions, comments, concerns, needs, you can always feel free to speak to any one of us. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 22 and verse 47 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53 is our passage today. That passage can be found on page 882 if you are using a church Bible, page 882. We're in Luke chapter 22 and verse 47. Before we look at the text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we come before your word and we desire to be convicted by it, to know the truth and have your truth set us free. And so by the Holy Spirit, would you please give to us the grace necessary to, to really hear it and to really believe it and to really behold uh, Christ in it. Would you give us the grace necessary to understand more and more uh, the love that you have for us? We can be so captivated by things that, that don't really matter all that much and so easily struggle in this circumstance and that one. Please, God, would you lead us to a rock that is higher than we are? Would you show us yourself and your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come to a passage that describes uh, Jesus' very last moments before he will be taken away arrested and crucified, and he knows it. This isn't coming out of left field for him. Jesus has been very vocal about his own awareness uh, of the cross, uh, the cup, the atonement, and it is all right there, right in front of him, which is why there's still blood and sweat on his skin, for he's been wrestling in prayer in Gethsemane on his hands and on his knees with a kind of dread and agony because the time has actually come for Jesus the Christ to act as a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not something in the distant future. This is all coming just mere moments away. Uh, what would you do if you knew that you just had a few moments uh, before you would be taken away from the people you love? What would you do if you knew in these next 30 minutes or so uh, that's all you really have left with them? I mean, this is a time for last words. This is a time for last looks. Uh, this is a time to make these moments count. You know, sometimes I think like that when there's a little bit more turbulence than I would like on a bumpy airplane ride. What if this is it? It doesn't help that that door flew off that airplane kind of recently. But you're given a perspective that you don't always get in moments like this, uh, maybe even a clarifying effect on, on what it is that really matters, that certain realities are made more concrete and the temporary nature of so many things are revealed to be just that. But where our minds go and where our hearts lean, uh, we can't really fake it in moments like that. We know what we really believe and get an idea of what it is that's really inside of us and what it is that we're really made of. In our text this morning, we find Jesus in this very moment, but about a million times more so. For there's no question in his mind on what is going to happen next. And we find in these verses three conversations really with different people. We have Jesus' last words with Judas first, Jesus' last words with his disciples, 
and also his words with the religious authorities who are seeking to murder him. These are his last interactions with them before he is taken away. And in each of these conversations, I think we get to see what is within the mind and the heart of our Savior. And so first Judas, we read in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? We find Jesus here asking Judas a question which is really meant to give him pause and arrest him in the middle of committing the most heinous act imaginable, betraying Jesus and that with a kiss. That rather than call down condemnation upon Judas here and, and stare daggers from his eyes into him, Jesus is trying to awaken him, I think, to the evil that Judas is neck deep into. That in these last moments of his, Jesus is still somehow giving Judas an opportunity. Now, just because Jesus knows that this is going to go down like this, it doesn't make it hurt any less. Uh, just because Jesus has foreknown that Judas would betray him, it didn't make Jesus treat him any differently than the other disciples that Jesus genuinely loved and cared for. He loved and cared for Judas the same. And I don't know how many of us could do this over the course of years. Back in Luke chapter uh, 6 and verse 12, Jesus spends the entire night in prayer before he selects the 12. And the last name listed there, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I don't know how many of us could still love someone over the course of years when full disclosure was there from the very beginning. I mean, have any of you ever been betrayed? It doesn't feel good. Does the fact of that betrayal, has it had any bearing on the way that you love and care for that person? Does the fact of that betrayal make you want better things for that person or worse things? Does the fact of that betrayal make you wish that that relationship had never occurred at all? Jesus' ability to love his enemies is seriously unrivaled. And praise the Lord, his heart is like this, for we each were once his enemies. We have each once turned our backs on him, living life like he isn't a reality at all. That's just Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus doesn't love us because we are all that lovable. And we know, therefore, that his love for us is prior to any love that we now have in our hearts towards him. We love only because he first loved us. Now, we can read abstract truth like this and know it abstractly, but when we see Jesus here in front of his betrayer and his fists aren't balled up and that neck in his vein is not popping out of his neck, we get a little bit more of a concrete picture that it is even his worst enemy is still receiving from Jesus a question that should stop him in his tracks and awaken him to what it is that he's actually doing. Is this how it's going to be? And what makes this betrayal all the more heinous is that Judas is one of the 12, which means that he has experienced what no one else in all of human history has ever experienced firsthand. I mean, to live for years within mere feet and, and inches even of our Savior. And to see his beauty and faithfulness, a righteousness, love, and, and grace, and to experience all of that 
uh, deeply, personally, to be a witness of every wonder, an observer of almost every single miracle, a hearer of about every sermon Jesus has ever preached, and to know, you know what, Jesus doesn't just preach this, but he actually lives it perfectly. I mean, no one else is like this. And to see children run into his arms and and the most demon-possessed set free. I mean, Judas himself ate the multiplied food while watching that food multiply in Jesus' very own hands. The gravity of this action here is amplified by Judas being one of the 12. And and notice here that it's really Judas' idea to signal in the dark of the night which one is Jesus. He is the one in the lead of this group. Because torchlights, moonlight, and whatnot, it just may not be bright enough. The mob would need a signal, and only one of the 12 would have the kind of familiarity to know Jesus' silhouette and the way in which he walks, his, his gait, so to speak, and the posture he has when he stands. Only one of the 12 could identify Jesus so easily in the dark, in the very garden where they spent hours upon hours together, laughing, talking, and enjoying each other. Only one of the 12 could come to Jesus with a kiss and not have that shock Jesus or any of the other disciples because they always greeted one another like this because they were this intimate with them. Just because Jesus knows prior that this betrayal would occur It doesn't make it hurt any less. And at this point, most of us, I think, I mean, just the smell of Judas coming near your face and looking him into his traitorous eyes as he feigns loyalty and love, uh, intimacy and relationship. You're going to come this close to me like that? I mean, most of us, I think, would recoil in disgust and state out loud what has been proclaimed before, that it would be better for you, Judas, if you were never born. Aren't there some swords here? This is the traitor. I think most of us would respond in a much different way than what we're seeing Judas, Jesus doing here. But what does he do? In these final moments before he's taken away, we find no declaration about Judas, no condemnation proclaimed with a furrowed brow and a pointed finger into his face. No, Jesus asks Judas a question as if there's no one else in this garden but the two of them. And he calls him by his name, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And Jesus uh, carefully, uh, surgically forms this question, and it begs an answer, which is meant to put the questioned one into a place of pondering. I think it really is a question that's meant to arrest him and stop him in his tracks and to make him contemplate, am I really doing what I'm doing after this many years and this much glory I've witnessed and this much power and grace and love? I mean, my feet are clean. They're sparkling because Jesus just washed them this night on hand and knee, my filth away from the dirtiest part of me, and yet he still calls me by my name, Judas, And he calls my action for what it is, betrayal. It is an act of kindness to call out sin and to call it what it is. And not just any betrayal, but the kind of betrayal that feigns affection when hatred is in the heart or with a kiss. And who is the one being betrayed but the Son of Man is the title Jesus uses, the one prophesied about, the Messiah, 
This is God come to earth. It's as if every single phrase is this alarm bell of sorts, each gong ringing until the next phrase hits to awaken me from the wickedness of what it is that I'm accomplishing in this moment. And Jesus looks me into the eyes and asks me, are you really going to do this, Judas, and to do this in this way? We find the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, moments away from his own arrest, spending some of the last of them questioning his own traitor, and in one sense, even now, trying to win him to repentance, even when he knows that that opportunity is not going to be taken by him. Judas is walking headlong into hell, and Jesus here is standing at its gates and saying, you can't get through until you walk through me one more time. And here we find that long-suffering and mercy that the Son of God has for even this traitor. And this is what we see in Jesus' last moments. Something within the heart of him uh, towards even the, the most heinous one. And so that's conversation number one, which happens moments away from being take, taken away, and it shows to us uh, Jesus' heart for even his enemy. Verse 49, we look at conversation number two with his disciples. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike him with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Uh, There's a clash here of mentalities. There's a conflict in philosophies of of ministry and differing uh, viewpoints of how the kingdom of God is accomplished as one cuts off the ear of an enemy, and the other heals the ear of an enemy. What Jesus is doing here is spending some of his last moments with a visual of how the kingdom of God is furthered and wherein lies its power. And while both may love the kingdom, there's really only one way in which it is accomplished. In John chapter 18, Jesus is already arrested there, and he's taken away, and he's being questioned by Pilate who asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And part of Jesus' response to that question in verse 36 is, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. You know, one of our more natural instincts when coming face to face with our enemies uh, is to kind of bare our teeth and, and ready ourselves in this self-protection, whether we're going to use our hands or our mouths. Uh, one of our more natural instincts is just to fight. And the disciples, they know, although they didn't predict it like this. But when they see a mob coming to their secret spot in the dark of night, which is now lit by torches, what is the very first thing that comes out of their mouth? Lord, shall we strike him with the sword? And there's no recorded response to that question to answer, uh, answer it or nothing that we find in our text. But what does one of them do immediately next? One of them swings the sword and cuts off the right ear of his enemy. Now, I can pretty much guarantee that he's not aiming for that ear. He's aiming for the head. Because in moments like this, we can feel it's either my life or it's his life. Our natural instinct, when threatened and in the face of a violent enemy, our natural instinct is to fight. Now, we know from other accounts that this one who swung the sword is Peter. 
And this is one of the reasons why we love him so much. Uh, he often says out loud what some of us are thinking in our heads. No matter how embarrassing it may sound in hindsight, Peter does what many of us naturally kind of want to do. And Peter often gets a bad reputation for being such a coward, but here he is. I mean, he's front lines. He's the first one to put his own life on the line when he feels that Jesus' life is being threatened. I mean, the group here has swords and clubs, verse 52. And so you can either run or you can fight for Jesus. And so I think there are good intentions here. And there's a genuine love and protection of Jesus, even at potential cost to self. There may be even a little bit of a prideful chip on his shoulder as well. Jesus just told him, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. Even after Peter declared, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death for you in verse 33. And so we have here Peter's knee-jerk reaction in this garden, which is a window into his very heart of his love for Jesus, loyalty, a readiness to fight, and a readiness to perhaps prove himself as well. And I think this is actually a very moving scene. You know, generally when we witness our loyal friends defending us, when we're able to observe that, those who love us uh, standing up for us, I mean, it does feel good, doesn't it? It feels just as good as betrayal feels bad, that though this one will sell me out, uh, this one actually has my back because there, there's love here. Uh, but this is not Jesus' response, nor is it his knee-jerk reaction, not because Jesus is offended by Peter's love, but because this is not the best way to love Jesus by taking up the sword. Jesus says no more of this, and what is his very next action but to heal his enemy at precisely the very spot where he has been wounded? You know, brothers and sisters, we have to let this sink in. This is Jesus' last recorded miracle before he's taken away, arrested, mocked, tortured, and then crucified, and his last miracle is to heal his enemy. And this is where we begin to see how the kingdom of God is not of this world. We fight by carrying a cross. We progress by dying to self. Our methods are, are otherworldly. You know, the proposed budget for our Department of Defense is something like $880 billion. And it feels kind of weird to round to the nearest billion. And that's not a statement of whether this is right or wrong. It's merely a statement of how the kingdoms of the world function. That the most powerful countries are powerful because of the might of the sword. And whether we're watching the Avengers or this or that action movie, it is much the same that the most powerful have the most muscle. But here Jesus actually has the most muscle. He can at one time call 12 legions of angels to his defense, but he doesn't do it. He actually refuses to use it. Instead, he receives this mistreatment because he desires to carry that cross more than he desires to get even with his enemies. It's not that Jesus is powerless here, but there's a different kind of power at play. And therefore, those who follow Jesus also desire to follow in his likeness, that we can endure hardship even from our enemies more than we want vengeance because of it. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, we should learn for another thing from these verses, that it is much easier to fight a little for Christ than to endure hardness and go to prison and death for his sake. 
The lesson before us is deeply instructive. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and take part in battle. Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. The passive graces of religion are far more rare and precious than the active graces. Work for Christ may be done from many spurious motives, excitement, emulation, party spirit, love of praise. Suffering for Christ will seldomly be endured from any but one motive, and that motive is the grace of God. The grand test of grace is patient suffering. Now, I wonder uh, how you define uh, true power. You know, when we see the first martyr in the early church, Stephen, he's preaching Jesus Christ unashamedly, and then the crowd starts throwing stones at him as a result because they're so upset. But what words do we find filling his mouth as his very last ones before he dies? In Acts 7 and verse 60, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I mean, how is it that when being attacked, somehow the followers of Christ are still concerned for the ultimate well-being of their enemies? Unless that motive is the grace of God. I mean, we don't find Peter ever drawing the sword again. Instead, we find him throughout the book of Acts preaching boldly, bearing witness, and frequenting jail cells that when confronted by the authorities, this is Acts chapter 4 and verse 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What are they saying? Stop talking about Jesus. What is Peter and John's response there? Do they draw their swords out? No, they say, whether it is right in the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then what happens to them? They get threatened even more. That's a different kind of power, isn't it, than that of the sword. How is the kingdom of God different from the kings of the world? We preach Jesus Christ crucified unashamedly. And we bear our own crosses very quietly that our message and our lives might testify to our Savior. And isn't that what is being modeled right here in this garden? Jesus is being attacked. There's a mob of muscle behind a traitor who kisses him on the face. And what does Jesus do? But he heals his enemies, giving them opportunity until the very end. I mean, imagine if you're this guy who got his ear cut off. And you have literally just seen your life flash before your eyes as this burly fisherman swings his sword at your head and you miss death by mere inches, but you feel it. Because I don't know if you've ever been hit in the ear. It's like some kind of different nerves here. And then this Jesus who you're trying to arrest so that you can kill him, he stops everything. And he touches you in the very place of your great pain, and he makes it entirely new. I don't know how this guy walks away from that experience and continues to persecute Jesus after that. He does, though. That later, when he tells the story to his friends, you know what? I got a story for you guys. My ear got sliced right off. I almost died by the sword. And his friends are saying, no way. Where did it happen? 
Garden of Gethsemane, right here, this ear. And they're like, you liar, your ear looks perfectly fine to me. Well, let me tell you, the guy we're arresting, he healed me on the spot. What? How? Simply by touching it. This man named Jesus, he healed me. I mean, what in the world? He has that kind of power? And he uses that power for your good rather than his own good? I mean, it's so otherworldly that it doesn't make any kind of sense unless this gospel is true, doesn't it? And it will be the same within our own lives as well, whether we have an enemy at work or whether, for whatever reason, we've made an enemy out of our spouse. Friends, parents, children, because they act in so-and-so in a way, and therefore I'm not going to love them or have their highest interest in mind because they treat me like this. That the power of the gospel is, is not seen in retaliation or, or power plays or healthy compromise. No, the power of the grace of the gospel is seen even in our long suffering and in attempt for their highest good, even at cost to myself, for my Savior loved me and gave himself for me, that the best thing I feel upon my shoulders is a similar cross that I carry as I follow his footsteps to Calvary. The kingdom of God progresses by cross-bearing, self-denying lovers of our enemies who genuinely want the highest good for them because that's how we know Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The kingdom of God is not achieved by the sword. The kingdom of God progresses in an otherworldly kind of way. Now, having said that, and I feel maybe this is necessary, I don't believe the Bible commands us uh, to not protect our families from something like a violent home invasion. Nor do I believe the Bible commands us uh, to not fulfill our uh, honor to protect our nation. You know, God, when all is said and done, he protects his own family. Christ, when all is said and done, he's the protector of his bride, the church. But you can protect your family with a vengeance. And I don't think that's right. That this guy is going to come into my house, I'm going to teach this full lesson. Or you can protect your family trembling and with tears in your eyes because you don't hate your enemy. There's a way to do it like the world. And there's a way to do it unlike the world. If you want to speak to me more afterwards about this very topic, you can. But Jesus has already taught us, Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. I mean, this is our posture as Christians, which again only makes sense if the gospel is true. And so the disciples need to understand as they witness Jesus' parting words here and see this parting miracle that God's people are not those of vengeance, violence, and force who want to see people get what we think they deserve. The kingdom of God is not furthered by bloodshed and violent crusades, but God's people are those who understand that our real warfare is spiritual and that our weapons are that of prayer and the proclamation of the word and that our lives might in pattern point to Jesus Christ who laid down his life for his enemies. And so that is conversation number two, verse 52. We look at the third and last one, which is directed at this religious mob. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders, 
We come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. You know, there's a great sense of uh, visual irony here in the scene, and, and, and Luke points this out more than the other gospel writers, I think. Notice that this mob with swords and clubs is made up of chief priests, officers of the temple, and elders. And that's all the people Luke describes in this list. I mean, can you imagine uh, Pastor Dave with a scowl on his face, a club in one end, and a sword in the other? Or Bob Moorfield doing the same thing? Get him, boys. And Jesus is pointing out the obvious. This is ridiculous. In addition to that, why now? I mean, you see me every day, day after day in the temple. You didn't do a thing. I'm not trying to raise this armed rebellion. I'm there teaching. Isn't it telling that you have to come as a mob, armed and ready, in the middle of the night, the dark of night? I mean, the scene is entirely ridiculous. And what is Jesus doing here? I think, like with Judas, who betrays Jesus with a kiss, I think Jesus is saying the obvious part out loud so that they can actually hear and see what it is that they're doing, so that they might be awakened to the shadiness of all that is going on. Chief priests, officers of the temple, elders with clubs and swords in the dark of night, because for whatever reason, you have to do this secretly when no one is around. Are you realizing what it is that you're doing? Now, are they going to change their minds, even when it's so obvious that it's, it's wicked? No, they're not. But Jesus still does it. And here's one implication for us. You know, it's, it is entirely possible to be religious and have this fake affection for God, uh, even over the course of years, and to become actually quite comfortable with a counterfeit faith. You know, no one would have suspected the religious leaders uh, to be a mob of violence in the dark of the night. No one would have suspected Judas. I mean, they actually put him in charge of the money, which is usually who you put the most trustworthy one in charge of. The outside is not matching the inside for either of them, but they can still live their lives with the same pattern. We have to realize that there is this self-deception when it comes to sin that we can become actually really comfortable in faking affection for God to the point where we can commit the most wicked acts even while we are kissing and proclaiming Jesus or wearing our religious garb. What is happening in this garden is actually not that uncommon because of this deceptive nature to sin. That even when someone points it out, it just doesn't arouse our conscience any longer. Because our conscience has been seared, rendering it unfeeling. I mean, you can have a devotion with your child and ask, who's the bad guys in the scene? The guys with the clubs and the swords trying to get Jesus. But you can ask the bad guys, are you guys bad? I'm sure they respond, no, we're not. And Jesus, again, clubs and swords in your hands, dark of night, really? I mean, this very phenomenon of this density to sin is one of the reasons why we need each other, brothers and sisters. We need the church. We actually need real people in our real lives who really know us. So we never get to this point where we can be religious on the outside and have hell in our hearts 
and be violent or sell Jesus out for a measly 30 pieces. And therefore, it's rightly called the, the power of darkness. For nothing else can really quite explain what is happening here in this garden. As the Son of God is taken away to be crucified for doing nothing else but living a perfect, beautiful, righteous, loving, gracious, glorious life. But notice our Savior here still, still trying to reason with his persecutors, even when they refuse to see what is obvious. He calls a sin a sin, a spade a spade, and evil evil, so that we might repent from it. You know, one of the things I really am growing more and more to appreciate about the Bible is that it isn't all that fake about the human heart. If you're going to write a narrative about Jesus and the disciples, you probably write them more like the Navy SEALs or the Avengers. But Jesus' disciples are portrayed very accurately with the same hearts that we have, that though they love Jesus, they really fall woefully short of him. And Jesus' enemies are not those in dens and dungeons, but they're often those in religiously high places. One of the things about the Bible is that it isn't all that fake about the deceitfulness and sinfulness of the human heart. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, our own hearts are often exposed to be the very same way. But what we see in this garden is Jesus wrestling with his enemies and reasoning with them. We see him meeting the shortcoming of his followers with patience and wisdom that these are his last moments before he is taken away and Jesus again somehow doesn't seem to be concerned with himself almost at all, but is more concerned in this last interaction with these people that they might have another opportunity to behold him for who he truly is. Now it appears that everything is wrong. The worst is happening. The traitor is winning. The disciples are blundering. The religious mob is going to accomplish what they set out to accomplish, that this is truly their hour, that this is the power of darkness. And yet here we see and we know the Lord's sovereignty, that even in all of this, Jesus is still somehow in control because he goes to the cross, bleeding hard and all, to give his life, to bear the wrath of God, to die there for sinners and as sin itself, the righteous for the unrighteous, the clean for the filthy, to take it all and to rise again, prove positive that his offering has been accepted, the power of death and sin destroyed, that whoever believes in him shall have life and life eternal. And even now through this text, it may be that Jesus is reasoning with you. Haven't you had enough of this kind of life without me? Aren't you fed up with the religious garb when your heart's not there? Aren't you tired of dabbling with this sin and that sin? And don't you want to quit messing with it? That's how Jesus speaks to us through his word. Hebrews 12, 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The God of grace is reasoning with us now to turn to him with all of our hearts. Then nothing else is more important and it's time to come back to me even now. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we, we are often those who 
cannot and will not behold the beauty of Jesus Christ, even when he's right in front of our faces. Lord, by your grace and by your Holy Spirit, would you cast the shackles off of our eyes and soften the hardness of our hearts that we might see him for who he really is. May it be that we see him and know him and love him. And may it be that we live our lives with all our might to the glory of his praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.